back to Beyond Texas, a program devoted to stories that change the world. I'm not just interested in people and events that physically altered history like dictators and wars, but I'm also interested in paradigm shifts caused by ideas, inventions, books. Our subject today is Marcus Aurelius. He might have achieved all three. Many people met him for the first time in this scene from Gladiator. You remember, he summons General Maximus to his tent to talk of Rome and how he has been chosen to save her. I am dying, Maximus. When a man sees his end, he wants to know there was some purpose to his life. How will the world speak my name in years to come? Will I be known as the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? Or will I be the emperor who gave Rome back her true self? There was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. And I fear that it will not survive the winter. Maximus, let us whisper now, together, you and I. Most scholars agree that Richard Harris nailed his depiction of Marcus Aurelius, at least in terms of channeling his personality, his philosopher-king persona. But there are those, like my guest expert today, classical scholar Lindsay Powell, who says the physical depiction was not so accurate. He said Marcus was only 58 when he died and did not have long, wild hair. Nonetheless, his verbal style and tone was consistent with Plato's idealistic vision of a philosopher king. Here's what Plato wrote. Unless either philosophers become kings in their countries, or those who are now called kings and rulers come to be sufficiently inspired with a genuine desire for wisdom, unless, that is to say, political power and philosophy meet together, there can be no rest from troubles. Marcus was very much that philosopher king that Plato dreamed of but the time in which he lived was unusually troubled. Aurelius scholar Professor Frank McLean says, The tragedy of Marcus Aurelius is that a reclusive and bookish would-be philosopher king had to spend his reign in continual warfare. So our journey today will take us through three considerations of Marcus Aurelius. First, what kind of man was he in his time? How is he seen, then, as a good man, an average ruler, a tyrant? Next, we will look at how his magnificent meditations survived all these centuries. How did it journey intact through the Dark Ages? Lastly, why is he enjoying a renewed renaissance now? For instance, a new translation of his meditations is today the number one bestseller in literature and history and history of philosophy on Amazon. Number one in all those categories. Not bad for a guy who scribbled some notes to himself 2,000 years ago. Well, first up is my friend and classical scholar Lindsay Powell, who will tell us of Marcus's life and times. Lindsay has written three books on Roman history, one on Drusus the Elder, conqueror of Germany, one on Marcus Agrippus, Uh, Caesar's right-hand man, and one on Rome's most popular general, Germanicus. He says that it's hard to assess Marcus Aurelius in his own time because reliable sources are scarce. 
when you're looking at the ancient world, it's somewhat of a Rubik's Cube and a puzzle. Because our primary sources, really, when it comes to Marcus Aurelius, everybody thinks about the meditations as, as, as a source of information. Well, it's not really, because it's not autobiographical. It's a scrapbook of things that he wrote down for himself. It wasn't a journal. It wasn't like, you know, I woke up at Times and I, I went to the forum. It doesn't do that stuff. Um, so, so what you rely on is Cassius Dio, who's a historian who wrote this mon monumental history of Rome called the Historia uh, Romaiki, which was a Roman history in Greek. Uh, around about 50 or 60 years after Marcus Aurelius had died, for he is using documentation. So, so there's one source. So there's a much later source called the uh, Scriptoris Historia Romana, which is, um, which is a lot more scurrilous in the sense that we don't know whether it's written by one person, several people, or a small group. It's a complete mystery as to what it is, and it's written much later. Uh, and that has other snippets and so on. And then you rely on things like coins and inscriptions, there are some letters to a friend whose name is Fronto, who was a general, and that there's some fragmentary correspondence that goes with that. So, so what I'm saying is you have to understand. So when you ask the question, what was he thought of in his day? It's really hard to know because you're relying on people who are much later to tell you. But, for example, 71, chapter 36, points three to four, it says, uh, and this is a uh, what's called an enconium. Cassius Dyer is writing about Marcus Reed. He says, Marcus did not meet the good fortune that he deserved. He was not strong in body and was involved in a multitude of tr troubles throughout practically his entire reign. But for my part, I admire him all the more for this very reason, that amid unusual and extraordinary difficulties, he both survived himself and preserved the empire. Just one thing prevented him from being completely happy, namely, that after reading and educating his son in the best possible way, that's Commodus, he was vastly disappointed in him. What I wanted to say is... Uh, if you haven't read it, it's worth doing this. There's a book called uh, Donald Robertson, How to Think Like an Emperor. Read at least chapter one. I was listening to an audio book uh, before, before this call. And, and, and you get a great sense from, from Donald's uh, writings about a world filled with pain and death. And um, so to give it this context, if you think about Marcus Aurelius uh, wrote this collection of things that he gathered or came up with himself. Um, during wartime, probably between AD 170 and 180, uh, during a war which was 14 years in the happening, which he only reigned for 19. So he spent 14 years at war. Nearly everybody that he loved and admired died during his lifetime. For example, his wife uh, died before him. He'd actually been with her for 35 years. He had 13 children, eight of whom died. Four of his daughters survived him of the eight. And only one of his five sons, that was Commodus, and he turned out like that quote there from uh, Cassius Dyer, not to be a good one. Um, so, so there was this general sense that um, in being taught things, I, I, I read that he'd been taught Platonism, Aristotelianism, but it was really Stoicism that can, he, he came to. And, and he was learning this at, at his private school, because he was taught at home, from the age of 12. And by his 20s, he, he's already using sort of techniques of meditation and internal reflection to really control his emotions. He's a very emotional man, from what we gather. And when he learns about the death of one of his tutors, he bawls uncontrollably. And uh, at one point, that the, the people around him says, just, just let him have his head, just let him get it out of his system, because he needs to learn to control this. And the, the, the way that he approaches his meditations is to, to do it and think about his own mortality. And apparently one of the things that, that Donald writes in, in his book is that Romans had mirrors which were polished bronze, typically. Um, so you wouldn't see a perfectly mirror uh, reflection like we do. 
it would be slightly distorted. It would be probably illuminated either by the daylight coming through the window or a flicker of a flame. So you, you can imagine you're looking. He catches the glance of his reflection in this surface. And, and what he does, he, he teaches himself to, to study this and to see through his face to his predecessor, who's Antoninus Pius, who had been chosen in turn by Hadrian. So he's looking at Antoninus Pius, then Hadrian, all the way back through Augustus, who we call the first emperor. And he asks himself the question, where are they now? And the answer is nowhere or anywhere that we can know. So there's this, in, in a sense, this profound sense of uh, trying to clutch on to um, the, the essence of life and being and defying death. He, he admits that it's just around the corner. I have to get used to it. And all the people that came before me are already dealing with it. And, and I, in turn, will too. So he, he is dealing with death. Um, and as I say, there's those things of temperance, wisdom, justice, and, and fortitude. Tough it out. Um, do the best you can uh, and, and be honorable in doing so. And, and, and the meditations, are, I think all of those things you guys think about here as a way to, to contemplate and think about these things, I think. We know that Marcus Aurelius struggled with all nature of chaos during the years he reigned. We know he at least extended the Silver Age of Rome well beyond the time it likely would have fallen apart without him. His son, Commodus, greeted the beginning of the collapse and, in fact, hastened it, mostly because he was not his father. Cassius Dio said the Roman Empire went from a golden age to a time of iron and rust. Marcus Aurelius may not have changed the empire, but he did sustain it longer than would have been the case without him. Donald Robertson wrote that when the news of his death was made public, the whole army of Pannonia and the common people as well were grief-stricken. Indeed, no one in the Roman Empire received the report without weeping. Now let's get back to Lindsay Powell to find out how meditation survived all these years. Lindsay, how did this great book in Fragile Scrolls survive? What you're saying is effectively that it is, is to summarize the entire literature of the ancient world. It's amazing that it survives. Just imagine, uh, some, I think it's something like 65%, a huge area of Rome was burned in, um, which means buildings and all their contents and all the writings were burned. If there was only a few copies, they went, they, they, they're destroyed. Um, so we're, we're talking about somebody who's, who's written in Marcus Aurelius this book, by happenstance, it, it, it comes to us. Uh, somebody decided to keep a copy, um, and, and it's probably going to come down to, uh, once again, there's one of the monks that, that sort of just you know, collected this stuff. And then people get a recommendation, go read this, because there are things in it, there are insights, there are wonderful words, and so on. Uh, I don't think there's been a time when Marcus Aurelius' meditations really in the last century has actually ever gone out of fashion. Whose soul was tortured. And, 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 and address that torment by seeking calm and wisdom. Uh, and he had studied how his predecessors had dealt with adversity. And, and I think, again, if, 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 you, if you find someone that, that has some heartening words to say, uh, it, it makes it slightly easier. I mean, the, the, people, I think, are always surprised that people in the past, and it doesn't have to be a very distant past, a very recent past, actually were not at all unlike us. When, when the soldiers here that Marcus Aurelius falls ill, they are particularly aggrieved. So they like the guy. And um, so in other words, the fact that he decided to spend his time with them 
rather than send his deputies to fight his wars for him, which, by the way, is what Augustus did. Um, it, it, that, that carried weight with those people. Around 900 AD, a Byzantine scholar named Arithus of Caesarea found a manuscript of meditations, fell in love with it, copied it, and began to prolifically mention it left and right in his letters and works. The oldest copy now in existence is in the Vatican, 1300 A.D. It was first printed by German scholar Wilhelm Zeilander. It was the first printed edition of Meditations translated from the Greek, which was the language that Aurelius wrote it in. From there, it entered into Western literature and Western universities and eventually became part of the required readings at many colleges, which is where I discovered him, in literature of Western Civ in my junior year in college. Many famous people kept meditations popular in the public eye. Teddy Roosevelt was a big fan of Aurelius and Stoicism in general. He took a copy of it with him in his late 50s when he explored the River of Doubt in South America, which, by the way, now has his name, the Roosevelt River. Roosevelt's autobiography recounts a case when, as a young man, he was afraid of so much, bears, horses, gunfighters. But he said that he trained himself not to act afraid in moments of danger. He said, by learning that, he gradually ceased to be afraid. So he took control of his mind. In more recent times, General Mad Dog Mattis says he carried a copy of Morelius' meditations in his rucksack in his years of combat and had it with him often as Secretary of Defense. He recommends the book to all young cadets. He said that despite being emperor, Marcus had a rough life, lived with his troops on the front line of war, faced enemies from outside and in, but never lost his humble spirit or his ethical grounding. Stoicism is most simply defined as enduring hardship without complaint. Stoics often had Spartan surroundings, or another way to look at it is that they didn't need much to be happy, just grateful to wake up each morning and have the gift of another day. Aurelius wrote, when you arise in the morning, think of what a privilege it is to be alive, to think, to enjoy, to love. It makes me think of cowboys. Cowboys were largely Stoics. They lived simply, herding cattle on low wages and basic food. They slept on a bedroll using saddles for pillows by campfires out on the open prairies. A Spartan life, but free. I think of Gus McRae sharing his Stoic philosophy with Laurie in the book Lonesome Dove. Laurie wished with all her might that she could get to San Francisco, where life would suddenly be beautiful and worth living. But Gus tells her that San Francisco will not give her happiness all by itself. He says, Laurie, darling, life in San Francisco, you see, is still just life. If you want any one thing in life too badly, it's likely to turn out to be a disappointment. The only healthy way to live life is to learn to like all the little everyday things, like a sip of good whiskey in the evening, a soft bed, a glass of buttermilk, or time with a feisty gentleman like myself. Well, see, that's Stoicism, with a little humor thrown in. Looking at the philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, we can see that he is most concerned with ethical and moral living. We can divide his philosophy into three categories. First is knowing that your mind is the most powerful thing you possess. He says, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you will find strength. 
The happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. Our life is what our thoughts make it. Sounds quite modern. Many a contemporary motivational speaker is unconsciously plagiarizing Marcus Aurelius when they sell their allegedly fresh advice. Aurelius also focused on living a worry-free life. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Never let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. He continues, the first rule is to keep an untroubled spirit. The second is to look things in the face and know them for what they are. He says, enjoy the now. Dwell on the beauty of life. Watch the stars and see yourself running with them. And he says, don't worry about eternity either. Live a good life. If there are gods, they are just, and they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based upon the virtues you lived by. If there are gods, but unjust, then you should not want to worship them. If there are no gods, then you will be gone, but will have lived a noble life that will live on in the memories of your loved ones. Third, being a good person was always his central focus. He said, if it is not right, don't do it. If it is not true, do not say it. Do every act of your life as though it were the very last act of your life. Waste no more time on arguing about what a good man should be. Be one. It is difficult to fathom, really, that these notes to self, written nearly 2,000 years ago, have such resonance today for so many people, across all cultures, across religions. But Marcus, though not attempting to write for posterity, knew a truth that would make a fitting epitaph for him. He wrote, What we do now echoes in eternity. And so it does. I'm W.F. Strong. You've been listening to Beyond Texas. If you'd like to write to me, you can write to me anytime at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. That's it for this week. Get out there and tell some stories of your own. Mm-hmm.